different story. Jesus and Jonah. This morning we get the privilege of starting a new series in the book of Jonah that shows us how the whole Bible in general, and yes, even the book of Jonah in specific, points us to the God-man who came from heaven and grew up in Nazareth. How the story of a man who ran from God's call sets the scene for the God-man who ran to God's call, all the way to the depths of the grave, and through resurrection to his glory and creating his people. The story of Jonah is a story that many of us might be familiar with. It's a story that in that familiarity has become a story crowded out by a a, a man swallowing fish and all the modern disbelief that comes with things like supernatural phenomenon and people who reject the supernatural outright. Unfortunately for the message of the book of Jonah, as one preacher put it, we have been looking so hard at the great fish that we have failed to see the great God. Over the six weeks of this series, we're going to be stepping into the story that we think we might know to see more than just the miraculous rescue of a prophet gone rogue, but to experience the lengths to which God's mercy will go to save rebels from themselves. We meet characters like this anti-prophet Jonah, two different groups of of not God's people who act more like God's people than God's prophet, and even a created world that does what seems to be the unexpected at the command of its creator. But most of all in this book, we meet a God who is consistently compassionate and gracious not just to his people, but to all kinds of rebels, no matter their nationality or their job title. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and whose mercy never tires of pursuing rebels like you and like me. And at each turn, this story has this this really brilliant way of turning our understanding of the world upside down. of, Of turning a mirror on ourselves so that we might ask at every act of this book, How am I like Jonah? Because you see, in many different ways and at different points in our lives, we are all in some way Jonah, wrestling with obedience because of the sin that lurks in our hearts, struggling through what it means for God to be truly loving and kind, gracious and compassionate to the point where he is that way to all people, not just the people that live in our zip code or share our language. To all people across borders, and yes, even people we might consider enemies. You see, you and I, if we're honest with each other, we all run from God in one way or another at one time or another. Because when we are faced with the God of the Bible, more often than not, sometimes when we step into the reality of the Bible, we encounter a God that we're not actually sure we really like. He isn't always the kind of God that we might want, but he is always the kind of God that we need. And so without making you wait any longer, as we do every Sunday, I want to dive into the Bible and position ourselves under the authority of God's word, knowing that he promises to work in us by his spirit through his word. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be in the first six verses of the book. And if you're having trouble finding it, it's okay. It's a small book. No shame in going to the table of contents. I won't look, I promise. If you didn't have your Bible, it's going to be up on the screen. And if you're joining us online, I do want to ask you, Grab your Bible and join us in reading from God's Word. And as we do every time we read, would you stand as we read from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. People of God, hear the Word of God from Jonah. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. 
headed for Tarshish, he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But but Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him. He went to Jonah down below deck. He said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe, just maybe, he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. This is God's word. You may be seated. You see, this morning we enter the story of Jonah in what is actually a surprising first scene. Act 1 of Jonah is going to be told across two sermons, so you'll have to come back next week for the next half of it. This morning we focus on the beginning of that first act, and we're going to walk through these six verses, that beginning of that first act, in two movements. So as we're tracking, you can track where we're at in the story. The first movement takes place in verses 1 through 3, and the second in verses 4 through 6. The first movement, we're introduced to rebels and God's heart. And in the second movement, we're introduced to rebels and God's hand. Verses 1 through 3, where we'll see rebels and God's heart for them. And then in verses 4 through 6, where we see a God who uses his hand to reveal his heart to rebels. And the North Star that we will use as we step in and out of the story this morning, the truth that will sit just beneath the surface of our text, of this scene, is that God's mercy outruns our rebellion. That God's mercy is faster and runs harder than our rebellion. There is no obstacle that will slow him down, no bridge he will not cross, no terrain that he cannot manage, no brokenness or rebellion that he will not enter. That God's mercy, plain and simple at every turn and in every way, will outrun the rebellion of his image bearers because he loves them. This is the story of Jonah. A story that opens with a divine message given to a human messenger. A message that this messenger rejects and a message that reflects the heart of God for rebels like you and I. The story opens with these words, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. The God of the universe made contact with one of his image bearers. But if you're a good student of the Bible, you'll notice that this isn't the first time the name of Jonah comes up. It's not just any image bearer that God is establishing contact with. He is communicating with Jonah, son of Amittai, a Jonah who prophesied to King Jeroboam way back in 2 Kings 14, Jonah the prophet. Now, we don't know where he was or what he was doing, but the God of the universe breaks into Jonah's life with the message. There's another prophet named Jeremiah, who describes God's prophetic interruption like this in chapter 20, verse 9. He says, His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and it begins to scorch him from the inside out. Starting like a small spark and growing in intensity, God's word leaves Jonah with no other option but release. And what was the word that God gave him? Look at verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Go, man of God, who has experienced my my mercy, my grace, go and preach. Go and warn. Go and show people that there is another way. Go. Go where, Lord? We'll go to the great city of Nineveh. Wait, I'm sorry. What did you say, God? I I think our connection is bad. I think you meant to say Jerusalem, not not Nineveh. I'm I'm not quite sure I'm catching what you're saying, but the text says that God did not stutter. Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, an empire known for its brutality, 
this great city that's so well-known at this point that it's kind of like saying uh, Washington or Berlin or Mumbai, like Prince or Cher. There's no need to explain. Everybody knows who you're talking about. Jonah did not have to ask which Nineveh. He knew that the word of the Lord was to go and preach to this metropolis that housed the barbaric and savage enemies of God. You see, this great city might have had what you might call a, a bloody history. It, this is actually not the only prophetic word that God speaks against the city of Nineveh. In another book about a prophet named Nahum, there's another word of the Lord for Nineveh starting in, throughout the whole book. But in chapter 3, he says this, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? Nineveh, this bloody city with its majestic walls and incredible art, its its beautifully cultivated gardens shining not from its impressive achievements, but because it was covered in blood. For all you DC comic fans, one author describes Nineveh with one word. It's Gotham. Darkness at every turn. Violence wherever you look, this capital city represented an empire that some historians call as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Now, I won't get into all the details because there are little ears present with us, but the grotesque way that this empire handled its enemies was nothing short of terrorism. With advanced military technology and bloodthirsty military strategies, the Assyrian Empire spread across the ancient world like a plague leaving the wreckage of ancient civilizations behind them. Go and preach to Nineveh, Jonah. Tim Keller says Jonah's mission was the equivalent of a a Jewish rabbi standing on the streets of Berlin in 1941 telling Nazi Germany to repent. It was not only dangerous, Jonah's mission was almost guaranteed to fail and end in torture and death. You can imagine the mental gymnastics that Jonah might be playing. God, I'm a prophet for Israel. That was the job description I signed up for, right? You're, you're, you're Israel's God. Now, okay, I know, you're the God of all creation, but you're, you don't send prophets to other nations. I, I don't know why you're asking me to do that. And, and even, Lord, I, I've heard of the other prophecies where, where you tell this prophet to prophesy against this nation, but you always told them to do that to Israel. They always stayed within your borders. Your pro- God's prophets stayed within God's borders. Why are you, that was the deal, this is all wrong, God. I have to sit with this. You know, I, you know, I got to pray on this, Lord. I have to be sure that you're the one saying this. But, but there's a familiar feeling that's coursing through Jonah's body by this point, setting fire to his bones. There was no mistaking it. This was the voice of God. Now what would he do? I want you to notice also the final piece of the word of the Lord. The wickedness of Nineveh had come up before him. So before we even encounter Jonah's disobedience in verse 3, we actually encounter and come face to face with Nineveh's disobedience in verse 2. And God does not start by sending fire and brimstone. He sends a warning. And warnings are meant to be obeyed. Warnings are opportunities for a second chance. In other words, God is sending his prophet to his image bearers who, yes, live in another zip code and who, yes, have been brutalizing other image bearers to warn them away from their sin and toward the God who made them. And Jonah wants none of this heart for rebels. Verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord. He hears God's call. He gets up to, to, to get up and go to Nineveh. And so Jonah gets up and goes to anywhere but Nineveh. 
to attempt to run away from God himself. And I say attempt because if you know anything about God, you know that he is not restricted by borders or checkpoints. So needless to say, we should be shocked by this turn of events in verse 3. Not just because running from God is incredibly foolish, but because this, the person that is running from God is the last person we think would be running from God. It is one of God's prophets who has received one of God's prophecies, a word from the Lord. Another prophet named Amos talks about revealing uh, uh, God's prophecies like this in, in one of his verses in the book. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Who dares disobey the lion of Judah, the God of the universe? Jonah, the prophet of God, dares to disobey. And in so doing, becomes a traitor. The story does not tell us why Jonah disobeys, why he runs, We don't get the full reason at this point. We actually have to wait all the way until chapter 4 to figure out why Jonah is actually running. But that's the power of this story, that it builds its way all the way up until chapter 4. But even here at the beginning of the story, there are some clues as to what was going through Jonah's mind. For one thing, Jonah has to be feeling some level of fear. After all, he's being called to travel hundreds of miles only to waltz into enemy territory and, and armed with nothing but the word of a God that they don't even acknowledge. But there's another thing that might be lurking beneath the surface of Jonah's disobedience. If he is being called to warn that God seems to be leaving the door open for repentance, for a second chance. A second chance, God? For these horrible people. God, do you know what you're doing? Do you have any idea who these people are? you have any idea the nightmares that you, you, these people have put my people, your people through? The terrorism that has rocked our country because of these Ninevites. The torture that they have infected your people with. Now, I'm not leaving this to chance. The story doesn't reveal what's lurking beneath the surface of Jonah's disobedience, whether it's fear or anger or a combination of the both. We're not, we're not told yet why Jonah runs. We have to wait till chapter 4 for that. But we are told where he runs to. The text says that Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship bound for that port. He paid the fare. He went aboard. He sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Let me help you see the point that the story is making here. You see, Jonah hears God, tells him what to do, and he decides that disobedience is safer than obedience. That disobedience is less offensive to him than obedience. So instead of obeying and traveling hundreds of miles east over land to Nineveh, Jonah decides, he disobeys, he plans an escape over a thousand miles west over sea to Tarshish. In other words, Jonah is willing to go to the exact opposite end of the world in order to avoid obeying God. Like any good student of God's word, though, we can probably assume that Jonah knows who he's dealing with, that Jonah knows who God is. That he can't escape God's power, but he also seems to remember that God dwells among his people and in his temple. And he might be hoping that he would at least avoid running into God by accident as he leaves the country. That maybe this fire that is burning up inside of him might just calm down a little bit. That maybe God will just move on to someone else. God, why don't you just find another prophet? There's a bunch of them around. We hang out all the time. I'm sure one of them would love to listen to you about this. You know what? I'm sure there are other people who don't know you. You know what? I I volunteer. I'll go to Tarshish. I'm pretty sure that there's people here that don't know. I will tell them about you. 
I can go there. And I, what, what reason could you possibly have for me to go to these Ninevites? Isn't that just like us? We know what God calls us to do. But we think we can hold on just long enough for God to get tired. God to get bored. God to move on to someone else. Won't that be easier, God? Just let me be me. I was good until you, you, you came in and you messed everything up by calling me to obey. But isn't that just like God? The same God who told Abraham to get up and go without telling him where he was going? The same God who called Moses into the throne room of the king of Egypt to proclaim, let my people go. The same God who told a teenage girl named Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah. The same God who told an expert in the law persecuting his people, a man named Saul, that he would one day follow that Messiah. God is in the business of messing up people's lives, not just because he's trying to use people to get the job done but because he's using the job to get people done. Because he cares about you and who you are becoming, who he has called you to be. God loves us too much and knows too much about us to let us stay where we are and avoid becoming who he made us to be. And still we run. Because we don't believe he is good. We don't believe that he knows what's best. We think God can't possibly understand what he's asking when he asks me this. He must have missed something. And so we run. We run to Tarshish. You see, we run to Tarshish where rebels run to hide. Our story makes a point in this text, in this verse, of repeating the name of Jonah's new destination three times. Just to make sure we see what God wants us to see. That Jonah's new GPS coordinates no longer read Nineveh. They read Tarshish. They do not read obedience, they read disobedience. That somehow, Tarshish is where you and I convince ourselves that God will not go far enough to see or far enough to seek. That somehow we have, whether out of shame or pride or some mix of both, managed to get out of God's sight and find our own version of safety. But Tarshish is not where we will find safety, but destruction. After all, to think that we can evade God's sight is to delude and to deceive ourselves. To think that we can be out of God's sight is to misunderstand both who God is and mischaracterize our power to run. Psalm 139 describes that like this, says, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, yes, even Tarshish, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is no running from God, and that's both good and bad news. Right? It's both gospel and judgment. It is scary. God being everywhere at all times is scary for those who are running from him in disobedience and rebellion. But it is comfort to those who find that they can run to him no matter what the situation is, no matter what happens. It is the difference between these two is seeing his presence as a mercy rather than a terror. God's mercy outruns our rebellion, not because he's just trying to get us, but because he's trying to bring us back. Look at verse 3 again. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. 
And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah ran from God to Joppa, and, and what do you know? It just so happened, there's a ship going exactly where I thought I should go. Isn't it so typical of us that in those moments when we are most struggling to obey God, suddenly and out of nowhere arise the most temptations? Suddenly and out of nowhere, the opportunities for sin just start to multiply. And there's a vehicle for disobedience right at hand. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, illustrated it like this. He described one of his friends who had this very violent temper. And every time his anger would explode, he would throw something. And so this Spurgeon says this, What struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something when he was angry, but that whenever he was angry, there was always something at hand to throw. Familia, there is always a ship ready to help us when we are disobeying God. Beware mistaking as God's providence an open door when we are actively disobeying the Lord. As God's thumbs up to our new plan, a ship appears ready at hand for Jonah's escape, and the text says that he paid its fare. He bought a ticket. Now, remember what I said about going to Tarshish. It's a really long trip. It's over a 1,000 miles, and at a time when ships traveled really slowly, and they could only travel for a few months out of the year out of safety. This was a one-way ticket that Jonah was buying that would take more than a year. Commentators say it's possible that Jonah emptied his life savings to buy this ticket. And we would be wise here not just to see sin's deception in providing an easy way to disobey. Not just the temporary insanity of thinking you can possibly run from God. But that there's a cost that sin always demands of us. Sin will always cost us. And in the delusion that sin brings, we can be so quick to pay it without realizing the consequences. Even if it costs us everything that we have. Like Jonah, we are all tempted to run from God. To think that we can run from God. To be willing to pay whatever price in order to make it happen. And there might be some of us here this morning who are currently mid-stride. Running from God right now. And I want to say, praise God, that none of us can run fast enough that God's mercy cannot reach us. Some of us here are Jonah, and this morning, God is trying to get your attention. So the question then is, Eric, how do I know if I'm running? I'm kind of getting freaked out by all the things you're saying. Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm not much of a runner, but as you can tell, but one of my friends loves running. I mean, he loves running so much that he signs up for every marathon, every ultra he can find. He, he tracks the miles that his shoes actually take and replaces his shoes, makes sure he researches the right shoes. He even watches YouTube videos of running, which I think is just a little too far. And every time we talk about it, I, he, he tries to convince me, I, you, the reason you don't love running is that you just don't have the right strategy. The reason you don't love running is that, that either you have the bad shoes or, or, or you have a bad stride or, or you have a plan that doesn't ramp you up slowly enough to it. Trust me, I, I'll work it out. I know love running. And he's wrong that I will love running. But what was curious to me in that conversation is that there are different strategies for different people of running. For us, we have different strategies of running from God. I might name a few the first one might be called something like direct disobedience. That, that, that when Jonah ran, it was not because he did not understand what God was saying. It's because he did. It's because he understood perfectly what God is saying and he wanted no part of it. And church, the word of God is very clear to us. 
God calls us to outdo one another in showing kindness. God tells us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to give thanks in every circumstance, to keep ourselves free from sexual immorality. God calls us to love one another, to bear one another's burdens. God calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and wives to submit to their husbands as is fitting in Christ. Children to obey your parents in Christ. God calls us to love our neighbor, to care for the widow and for the orphan. Our problem so often with these and every other command of God is not so much that we don't understand, but that we do. We understand. They're crystal clear to us, and they're just really difficult. One pastor writes this, Too many of us are searching around for the will of God as if it were some ever-elusive magical formula. And because we are unable to discern what God's will is, we are content to live in disobedience. We spend our time chasing after and hoping for a word from God. Unfortunately, what we fail to do is look into the word of God. This morning, how might you be running from the clear commands of God's word? Another strategy could be called rationalized disobedience. It's when we, we try to justify and defend our disobedience through some mental gymnastics, thinking we can make something good come out of our disobedience. On our way to Tarshish, we convince ourselves that, you know, I can obey God's kind of general commands anywhere I go. I'm, I'm just going to obey him somewhere else. When God calls us to a specific place or a specific ministry, we, we avoid him by thinking we can still be of some good elsewhere. We run from God by deceiving ourselves with half, half obedience, trying to make half obedience look like full obedience and thinking that he won't catch our sleight of hand. This morning, how do we try to convince ourselves that because we are doing X, Y, and Z, that God won't mind that we aren't doing the very thing he called us to do in the first place? The last running strategy is indirect disobedience, and this one kind of cut to me. So I was, like I said before, you know, editing for content in my sermon, and this was the one that I was kind of willing to take out because it hit me so hard. Maybe this morning some of us here are running, and we think that we are running under the radar. We think that we are good, that we can dot all the I's and cross all the T's on the Christian checklist that we have made up, and, and that we're good, that God won't possibly ask this or that of us. After all, doesn't he kind of owe us since we have been so good for him? Doesn't he have to kind of deliver on his promises and give us what we pray? Happy life with dollar signs and positive vibes. Some of us are running from God by not going as far as Tarshish, but by thinking we can keep God far enough away that his plans won't mess up our plans, but close enough that we get to control his blessings for our purposes. How might you be running from the life-altering call that God has on your life by trying to draw your own religious boundaries? Whatever our running strategy, ultimately the question of verses 1 through 3 where rebels encounter the heart of God is will we trust his heart? Do we actually believe that God knows what is best? Will we doubt his goodness or embrace his sovereignty even and especially when it is difficult to understand? Maybe the reason some of us are running right now is precisely because something came into our lives that just didn't compute, that we couldn't make sense of, that is hard to understand, that led us to the conclusion that God either doesn't know what he's doing or is not as good as he says he is. For Jonah, that came, into being, that came from being sent to the last people on earth that he thought God would send them to. Maybe for us, 
It's in the wake of a phone call from a doctor hearing the word cancer for the first time. Maybe it's after the umpteenth call from another human resources department saying that they're going in another direction. Maybe it's when the engagement or the wedding ring is left on the counter. Maybe it's when the ultrasound brings tears and anger rather than joy and celebration. When God's sovereignty suddenly feels a lot more like hell than heaven. Do we turn from him or do we turn to him? Do we turn from him because how could we possibly trust that he is good after something like that? How could we possibly trust that he is wise and just and powerful and is for us if he lets things like that happen? Do we start to walk in the direction of Tarshish because God just doesn't seem as good as we thought he might be? Whatever our running strategy, the story of Jonah tells us that though we may be in motion, God's mercy doesn't stay on the sidelines and doesn't sit on the bench. That God's mercy runs after us and even now pursues us to show us who God really is in those moments of difficulty. To show us that he really is worthy of our trust, even when we can't understand why he's doing what he's doing. In other words, no matter what form our rebellion takes, God's mercy outruns our rebellion, even in our tears. Because he loves us. And because God is not in the business of just moving on to someone else. He is about changing rebels by his mercy into children who trust that mercy that met them is big enough to meet anyone, even fear-inducing and undeserving people like Ninevites. God's heart is for rebels like Ninevites as much as for rebels like Jonah. His heart is drawn as much to Nineveh as it is to a ship going to Tarshish. Even if he does use different strategies to reach them. See, the story of Jonah is a story that doesn't just connect rebels to God's heart. It is also a story that shows how rebels meet God's heart in God's hand. And in Jonah's case, he met God's heart in a hand that sent a storm. A storm that would begin this redirect that would eventually carry Jonah back to where God called him in the first place. Look at God's hand in verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. God called Jonah to communicate mercy. Jonah ran from God's call of mercy, and God's mercy ran after Jonah. God's hand in this scene does not appear to be gentle. It doesn't even look on the surface as patient or kind. But for those who have eyes to see and hearts that trust, we see mercy in this storm. There is something that the rest of the story will reveal that right now is hidden in the storm that is hard to see, that we often struggle to see, but a violent storm that is meant to turn rebels around and save us from ourselves. Maybe you came here this morning frustrated with God, wondering why you didn't get this or that job or this or that promotion. Maybe you're struggling with God because he didn't let you get into that school or because the relationship you thought was going to end and I do ended and I don't. Even though every step of the way you ignored his warning signs. Every step of the way, you ignored the yellow flags and they became red. You ignored the, the counsel, the caution of trusted friends and family in Christ, and they, ra- they raised the volume of God's warning, and you kept going thinking that you knew better. And, ugh, they just don't understand. God is going to come around to my way of doing things. Oh, look, a ship. Things are already looking up. But like the storm that God threw in the path of the ship, it was God's mercy that he didn't let you make it to Tarshish. You may never know what could have been, 
at that job, in that relationship, at that school. But you can know without a shadow of a doubt that God is good, that he is just. And maybe, just maybe, it was mercy that you didn't get that job. That you didn't go to that school. That you didn't marry that person. When storms come and they keep us from making it where we, can actually, where we are fighting to go, it is comforting to know that there is nowhere we can actually run from his presence. That he's still coming after us. Now, it's also important to recognize that every disobedient act, every sin comes with a storm in its wake. That is not to say that every storm, every difficulty we experience is caused by sin. We don't reason backwards. Something hard is happening and therefore I have to figure out what sin caused it. Not every moment of suffering is punishment for some sin we have to figure out. But every sinful act of disobedience will bring suffering in our lives. Because it works against God's design for us. There's one writer that I, I, I love, Derek Kidner. He says it like this. He says, sin sets up strains in the structure of life which can only end in breakdown. Sin is like playing Jenga. The more pieces we pull from the structure, the more pieces we tap and try and see if we can remove without much consequence which aspect of life according to God's design is something we think we might be able to do without. The more we remove, the more life becomes unsustainable the more, the closer we approach breakdown. In Numbers 32, 23, God puts it like this. He says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but sin is always out to destroy. Tim Keller defines sin as the suicidal action of the will upon itself. He illustrates it by by describing it as being hit more with like radiation than with a bullet or with a knife. At first, it kind of feels normal, but the symptoms will come And by the time they do, it's too late. And so by God's mercy, he uses storms, whether they are the direct results of our sins or the indirect result of living in a sinful world, for our good. And I know this is a really, (laughs) I'm not getting much amens in this section, and I understand why. But TVC, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't quote Romans 8.28 to you. If I didn't remind you That for Christians, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That no matter the reason, everything that comes into our lives, whether a, a result of our sin or a result of living in a sinful world, are going to be used by God to diminish sin's hold on our hearts and increase our trust in him. Even in the fiercest storm. Verse 5 describes how fierce the storm was that Jonah was in. And it does it by by describing these hardened sailors with with terror in their lungs. Verse 5 says, All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. These sailors caught in the crossfires of God's mercy recognize in this storm something supernatural. They do what they know, so they send up a flare to their idols, and they start to unload everything that they're hauling. Down the steps into the cargo hold, up the steps, up and over the railing as the waves hit the ship. Down the steps and up the steps, down the steps and up the steps in between there. Please have mercy. Please save us. And as the cargo hold gets emptier and emptier, they notice someone behind all the crates. As they they yell at each other, coordinating their efforts in this God storm, they trip over a man that has been dead to the world, asleep in the middle of a hurricane. The text says Jonah had gone below deck. Where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, how many of you have fallen asleep in class before? Come on. There's one class in high school that I made sure never to sleep in. 
Because this teacher had this, uh, uh, I would say, creative strategy that he would employ whenever someone started nodding off. If it was one time this, this student was nodding off, had his head on the table, and this teacher employed this creative strategy, kept on teaching, motioned to the class to remain silent, and very slowly rolled his high-top table over to the student. Now, this table was high enough that it could actually get over the student's head as they were sleeping on the desk, and then he just kept on teaching and went back to the front of the class where all of a sudden he dropped the book. (laughs) After the student's head bounced a couple times, he never fell asleep in that class again because falling asleep in that class could be dangerous. The spiritual numbness that had taken over Jonah in this moment has enabled him to sleep through a hurricane at sea while everyone on the ship himself included was in mortal, extreme danger. Whatever happened in his head and heart that brought him to this cargo hold in the bottom of a ship on the way to Tarshish, however he had convinced himself that he was okay disobeying God, the God of all creation, overwhelmed with exhaustion, he had fallen asleep, a deep sleep the text says. And as the wind and waves rage, the sailors go to tell their captain, and this captain cannot believe what is happening. Look at verse 6. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe, just maybe, he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. What in the world is wrong with you, man? As Jonah regains consciousness, rubbing the, uh, the, his eyes, the sleep out of his eyes, he, he's in that in-between state where he's not sure if he's dreaming or in reality or maybe in a nightmare. And, and he hears someone yelling at him. And oh, what, 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 how did, is that God? In the mouth of this Gentile captain, the same, was the same call that the word of the Lord came to him in verse 1. Get up. And all of a sudden, irony of ironies, this Gentile captain is the one that's pointing God's prophet back to God. When it was God's prophet that was supposed to go to Gentiles and point them back to God. This captain is asking Jonah to pray. Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. He's he's asking Jonah to play God roulette with all of the other crew members. Right, they're all screaming out to their, their gods. And he's just saying, maybe we'll hit on the right God and he will save us. But regardless of this polytheistic captain, there's something extremely pointed at the end of his statement. Maybe, just maybe your God will notice us and save us. Isn't that what got Jonah in trouble in the first place? That God took notice of Gentiles so that they might not perish, and so he sent Jonah to preach to those Gentiles. And Jonah refused. So what will Jonah do as this captain screams at him between the waves? Screams those nightmarish words that just a few days ago were not spoken by a Gentile, but by the living God himself. The very God that Jonah was trying to run from. What has Jonah done? His disobedience is about to cost the lives of an entire ship. His disobedience has endangered everyone around him, and now this captain is shaking him out of his spiritual numbness, pleading with him for help. The sleeping prophet has slept through a storm of biblical proportions and is awakened and confronted with his own disobedience, not by another believer, but by an unbeliever. What will he do? Well, the story continues in verse 7, but that is part two of the first act in Jonah, and you'll have to come back next week for that scene. So like any good story, I'm going to pause here at a cliffhanger. But like any good sermon, the reason we're pausing is in order to reflect. 
to step out of the cargo hold and see in the storm the mercy of God that I was talking about, this mercy of God that outruns Jonah's rebellion because we see in this opening scene a few important points that I want to mention here at the end. Can't expect, we can't expect to set ourselves up against God and get away with it. That's point number one, and I probably reserved the hardest one on purpose for the beginning because the other thing that we can't expect is for God to be anyone other than who he is. Merciful and kind, powerful and patient, just, even in our disobedience, ready and willing to forgive. And though we haven't seen the forgiveness in this story yet, we are reminded in between Jonah's snores that there was another prophet who fell asleep at the bottom of a boat in a storm. A prophet whose name is Jesus. Another prophet from Israel that was sent by God to communicate his warning, his mercy, his grace to sinners who did not deserve it. To sinners that he loved so much that when called to go, he did not run away from, but ran to people suffering from sin, rebelling in their sin. Jesus, the very mercy of God in human flesh, who is fundamentally different from Jonah. Jonah, who was guilty of blatant disobedience, refusing to do God's will. Jesus, who was overwhelmed by his love for us and who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It was his joy to obey God. To give up his life for us, a sacrifice that Jonah wasn't even willing to consider for these Ninevites. In Matthew 8, we read about the storm that I just mentioned that Jesus slept through. The text says, then he, meaning Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed. They asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus asleep on the boat like Jonah. Disciples panicked like the sailors. A storm on the water, this time not as a result of God's power to pursue rebellious prophets, but a storm that became an opportunity for the true prophet of God to demonstrate God's power to command creation and to actually save rebels from their sin. What kind of man is this? It's the creator of the universe who took on flesh in order to save us from our sin. And so this morning, as we come to the end of the sermon, if you're a Christian, the call of Jonah is to remember the power of the gospel in your life. To remember the grace that saved you. To let that experience of God's mercy and grace cause you to second-guess your escape plan when God calls you to obedience. Even when that obedience is scary, difficult, or let's be honest, unimaginable. But if you're not a Christian this morning, the call of Jonah's story in these first six verses is to respond to the power of the gospel that is pursuing you right now. You've been running from God. Maybe you used to believe, or maybe you didn't even believe in the first place, but something is happening and you feel someone is coming after you today. The mercy of God that just won't let you go. The mercy of God that says you matter too much to him to let to let you get all the way to Tarshish. The power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message that God, that Jesus was called to proclaim, to preach against us in our own version of Nineveh, is that he obeyed God completely when we disobeyed God at every turn. That his obedience, like our disobedience, his obedience, like our disobedience, led him all the way to death on a cross. But yet, unlike our disobedience, his death was not his punishment. 
It was him taking on our punishment. He was buried in a tomb. There was no question about it. He really did die. But on the third day, the grave could not hold him anymore. He came back to life so that our wickedness that had come up before God would be completely paid for. The mercy of God in Christ is that we no longer have to die for our sin. He already did that. And now we get the chance to live true life. In life-giving obedience, instead of running from God, we run to God because in him we find joy and, and peace and hope. And even when we do run, God's mercy is not far behind to correct our trajectory and to save us from ourselves. The story of Jonah is, yes, centuries before the story of Jesus, but it is a story that prepares us for the one who didn't run away. The one who, whose eyes are filled with mercy and who ran to us in mercy. Whose love wouldn't let him stay in heaven but called him to do the hardest thing anyone has ever done. That called him to lay his life down for us. So the question before us all, Christian or not, is would you pause today? Would you pause this week? Remember the gospel, but don't stay at remembering. Would you let the gospel change how you respond to the God who calls you to himself? As I close, would you pray with me? Jesus, our Savior, this morning, we are in awe of you. You obeyed even though we disobeyed. In fact, because we disobeyed. You made it possible for us to live. You brought us from death to life, and for that, we are eternally grateful. As we prepare ourselves to confess and reflect on all the ways in which we run, like the song we are about to sing, we also declare that we believe, that we will follow you. Whenever the sea is calm, or the boat is tossed upon the waves and the good and the bad times, we trust you and we ask you to enable us by your spirit to obey. Help us to continue to believe you are good even when we find it difficult to understand. We believe that you are who you say you are, that you are always good and always in control. Would you have compassion on us? May we see your mercy at every turn. As we confess, would you remind us of your gospel of grace and mercy? And it's in the name of Jesus who obeyed your call to save us, that we pray. Amen.